This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. We have reassembled the COVID Collab. This is number eight in the series, and we have the original crew together, Grant, Bryce, and Susan. Um, since we don't have a guest this week, let's kind of roll into some some updates. Susan, uh, how are you doing today? What's what's the latest in your world? So I would say the things that are on my mind is the governor's announcement of the $123 million in grant funding available to individuals, families, nonprofits, small businesses, trying to figure that out. And we have also reopened our uh, COVID emergency fund and are accepting applications from service and gig economy workers for another $100,000 in that fund. And been reading those applications, which you can tell people's pain is very real. Indeed. So is that is that $123 million, is that from the the sort of coronavirus money that we talked about last week? Is that part of that, whatever, one and yes. a quarter billion? Yes. Okay. okay. Yes. And I, I think that uh, the governor had a news conference yesterday, and I think his staff is probably scribbling madly to develop guidance and guidelines uh, other than the very general guidelines that were released by the governor's office, um, like so that we know exactly who's eligible for what, whether an organization can apply to two separate pots. It's There's not a lot of guidance and there's a very short timeline. So we'll all be figuring that out over the next 24 to 48 hours. Indeed, a bit of a scramble. Bryce, how about an update from you? I actually wanted to ask Susan a question. Right. Um, so you said that people are applying for your grants and they're telling you stories. What kind of stories are you seeing just so that it's not just an abstract... Yes, so we have a, a low barrier application form that requires people to submit some evidence that their employment was affected by COVID-19. And as I said, it's geared to service and gig economy workers. So the people who serve our drinks and cut our hair and work us out at the gym and take care of our kids and clean our houses. And uh, then there's a section that says notes or anything else you know you wanna share. And people are talking about I need money for groceries. Um, I work three service jobs and they have all, um, all they all remain closed. Um, I can't pay my rent. Uh, I, unemployment still hasn't come through. So there, you can really tell um, that this is grinding on in the lives of many of the people who make our community run. Yeah, certainly going through those things makes it um, makes it really real, and it's wonderful that you're able to open that fund and, and connect these resources uh, to people in in, in real need. Um, so thank you for that work. Uh, let's continue with updates, um, Bryce. How about how about your update? What's what's the latest with you? Oh, you know, uh, what are we at week eight of this? Uh, I think so week eight, yeah. Uh, you know. At this point, I think we've crossed over all of the transitional hurdles and this life now feels like, quote unquote, normal, mm-hmm. um, which is a strange thing to think about, given that it's a life that largely consists of me being in my house and leaving every 10 days or so to go to a grocery store. Uh, but 
Um, yeah, so I don't – in terms of my own personal life, it's just the same. In terms of what's going on in the world, I continue to bounce around on an almost hourly basis between uh, glimmers of optimism and deep pessimism. Indeed. And we'll get into sort of a lot of that oscillation over the course of this conversation. Grant, how about you? Uh, what's what's new in your world? Yeah, big picture. I think the, the new world for us is around um, recognizing that we used to be in a place where it was very easy for us to be focused. We mm-hmm. were really just looking at COVID relief and COVID response. And now that we're entering this new phase one uh, reopening for lack of a more universal term, Bryce, um, we now have to expand our focus and really be thinking about um, what the needs are of businesses who are trying to reopen responsibly and effectively. And at the same time, recognizing that many of the businesses in our community still haven't even found the relief they need to be able to kind of either reopen or be sure that they can sustain themselves over any amount of time going forward in the future. So it's about uh, sort of expanding the breadth of our thinking and the breadth of our services right now, and also helping the community understand um, kind of where we are in the state of reopening so that, you know, my recognition is that it was easy to feel unified when we knew we were all doing the same thing. All of us were sheltering in place. All of us were bored. All of us were confused. All of us were scared. Suddenly as this um, transition goes towards phase one, we're seeing people exhibit behaviors that we're not yet comfortable with or take actions that maybe the science says is okay, but it's uncertain for us. And so suddenly we're starting to see, I think, some of the splintering in that unity and figuring out how we can communicate effectively to the entire community so that people understand what to expect out of phase one, how to behave in phase one, and to continue to do the great work that we've been doing as a community to be responsible and thoughtful and continue to move forward with with a really unified mindset and in a way that we can feel good that we're making progress and we're not going to move backwards. Yeah, I think that really resonates, Grant, and it's something that I've been thinking about. I don't want to necessarily torture the great dimmer switch analogy we've we've come up with or Bryce came up with, but as as you explain that, Grant, those dynamics make me think that, yes, we have the societal dimmer switch question, like collectively, what is the sort of right phasing of of resuming some activities that approach some normal or at least some conception of normal we, we once had? But then it occurs within the individual. We all have to make, or at least, you know, based on the freedoms we have in this country, we, we tend to make individual decisions about risk and uh, how we engage and how we either embrace or don't embrace social norms around us, et cetera. Um, so, Bryce, how are you thinking about, um, you know, are the state of affairs now and how this sort of dimmer switch thing works collectively and then individually? It's tough because we're in a situation where both risk, which is formally defined as I'm making choices that have probabilities that I at least understand to some degree, Mm -hmm. but there's also uncertainty. And a lot of us are bad at risk and uncertainty. And, you know, we're kind of grappling in the dark with, well, we don't really know what we're doing and what other people are doing. And, you know, that's, it's a hard place to make decisions from. And um, in particular, I think some of the tension that we're going to see and have already been seeing is 
a lot of times when we're faced with things that we don't know what to do, we just kind of get in line with whatever the social norm is. But we don't, this is so new that we don't have social norms and we're trying to establish those social norms, but we can't establish good social norms because we're uncertain about what we're supposed to be doing. And so, you know, in that state of the world, I think the, the best advice is this is a time for grace, right? This is a time to be more patient and more understanding and, you know, more willing to kind of uh, check some of your emotions, uh, and try and get to, you know, in, in the class that my wife and I teach, uh, in the MPA program, you know, it's a class on social skills and social networks. And, um, you know, one of the things that we try and teach in there is, you know, uh, be very careful about the story that you're telling yourself about other people's choices. Um, be, try and be very clear about separating, intention from impact because the story we tell ourselves is usually i see you doing something and therefore i am going to assume something about your intentions so that i can fill in the gaps for why i see you make this choice and usually when we assume about people's intentions we are frequently wrong uh and so it's fine to say "Ooh, the impact of that choice on me is not great because you know you actually got me sick um, or, um, you know, there's a story about this business in Utah, which literally was forcing its employees who are COVID positive to go to work. Uh, and now half of that work, uh, in that business has COVID. Hmm. Um, so the impact there is very clear and the intention, once we kind of figure it out, we can go to go, okay. But, you know, when somebody is, uh, making a decision about how much to operate their business in Missoula or whatever it is, let's try and be very clear about what we think the impact of that is. And then we can have a discussion about that impact and not jump to making assumptions about that person's motives or whether they're a good person or a bad person. Yeah. It feels like we're not to get too wonky, but it feels like we're living the fundamental attribution error on like a minutely basis with every inter interaction. Uh, Susan, your perspective on this. I was just thinking that, Bryce, if the whole being an economist thing doesn't work out for you, you could be my rabbi because that was very <laughs> profound. Um, I feel like we have an opportunity to demonstrate, you know, the better angels of our nature or the mean side and the uncivil side at a time when civility and collaboration and grace are called for. And when I see, for example, Facebook pages that advocate boycotting businesses and just some of the rhetoric on social media, it's, it's very distressing. And um, I just want to endorse everything that Bryce just said. And uh, if we could just curb our tendencies to assume the worst of people that we probably don't even know, I think we'd be better off. I told you I'm the Jewish Pollyanna. Indeed. Yeah. And so Grant, how's this playing out in your conversations with businesses? I'm sure you have some um, in your, in your, in your scope that are sort of like, Hey, we, we got to open, we have an opportunity, let's go full steam ahead or some version of that. And then others that are, 
either not in a position or like you said, there's such differences across the wide variety of businesses in our community right now. Are you kind of thinking about all of that? Yeah. I mean, I think especially in a community where we have so many small businesses and I have the privilege of interacting with a lot of those business leaders, I think I've never been more appreciative of and sensitive to the fact that um, I think like all groups, we often have this view that businesses act and think in X way. And each of these business leaders is a human being and Mm -hmm. each of them is bringing with them a set of experiences and fears and anxieties that are impacting how they want to approach this. And I am finding our business community to have been remarkable in their willingness and their eagerness to be deferential to our health department, to provide the leadership around decision-making of what's right and what's not right. And also incredibly cooperative and communicative with our health department to say, you know what, I'm not comfortable yet because I have no idea how to put these following things into practice. Um, And to give you a specific example, right now, our retail sector is compelled to follow guidance from our health department. That has never been the case before. The health department has had oversight over bars and restaurants, but never over retail spaces. Mm -hmm. So this is a new challenge, both for our health department and our retailers. And it has required, and I'm, I'm so pleased that we have had just incredible dialogue back and forth so that when you have a a retailer who says, you know, I'm just, I feel really comfortable that I can get people in the door or line them up at my cash register, but I still have no idea when I send that person home and then they decide they want to return a product. What do I do next with that product to make sure that when it comes back to my store, my employees are safe, the product gets stored somewhere, I know what to do with it so that I know if I can resell it and how to resell it so that it can be safe for the next person. And our health department's been great about, um, being responsive to those kinds of questions. And what and what's what that's meant for MEP is this new role we've realized of understanding we really have three constituencies around whom to build confidence. And we still have a ways to go. We need to make sure that our business owners have the confidence that they have the guidance they need to feel secure opening correctly. Some of them have that confidence and some still don't. We need to make sure that our employees of those businesses have access to the information so that they can assess for themselves, that they can be confident they're going to a, a safe and healthy workplace. And we need to make sure that our our uh, purchasing community and our um, general public who is going out and doing business in these places understands and has access to these guidance documents so that they can have the confidence to go into these places. So for the last week, we've been working overtime, um, both working with the work group that Susan is a part of to make sure that those groups that really reflect um, customers, buyers, and employees are talking with business owners and institutional leaders, and they are reviewing the documents that come out for guidance, and then we're providing those to the public in ways that are really easily digestible so that everybody can feel like they're on the same page and everybody can understand what playbook we're using to try to create the safest environment possible. So, Grant, I want to follow up. Uh, You talked to various essentially for all three of those groups, you're trying to get to some notion of quote safety or feeling comfort. Um, Is there a definition? Is there, what, is there a level of risk that you're targeting? Is it just, is it no risk? Is it, uh, you know, uh, what's the discussion like in terms of trying to match objective reality to something that has a vague definition like safety or comfort? 
That's a great question. And I'm going to be really honest. I've kind of wrestled with that myself. And I have come to the conclusion that every time I find myself approaching this from a point of rhetoric, that is trying to motivate somebody to have a position, um, I don't feel like I feel like I'm stepping over a bound I'm not willing to step over in the context of what's happening with this disaster. And I guess I have landed on our communications on on the need to provide clear, understandable and and accessible information and allow people to decide for themselves what risk they're willing to take on. It's not it is not for me to tell a business owner that they should or should not open. It is not a place for me to tell an employee they should or should not feel safe. It is not a place for me to tell a customer that this business is safe and that business is not. Is not. I trust our health department to decide the right phase. I trust them to provide in partnership with other institutions the very best guidance. And then I trust each of those end users of the information to decide for themselves how they want to use that information to influence their actions. And I... I have found in myself that the more I learn and the more I understand and the more accessible all of this information is, the more comfort I have in our experts and the process and the communication. And my hope is if we get this right, that others will follow that same path and choose for themselves when it's right to do whatever activity they're seeking to do in ways that move us gently towards a state of more activity in a safe way. And I think but, also, Grant, that your emphasis on uh, guidelines, guidance, expectations that are uh, applicable across a variety of sectors has been helpful in our reopening Missoula task force or whatever we're called, I forget our official name. Um, And where we have divided into so many different sectors, including like what's expected of, of the public, of the consumer. Uh, what's expected of camps and youth activities, et cetera. Um, I think the group is doing a really good job of, without making it like so detailed and so crazy making, but of, of trying to figure out what makes, what makes sense. And then yes, hopefully leave it up to people with good judgment to follow. You know, and, and as you're kind of thinking about that, I think we, we just, uh, as individuals, as a society, media, et cetera, we all have this this tendency to oversimplify. And so risk is multidimensional. I mean, there are risks to to social distancing, to staying home, to, you know, that the consequences of, of unemployment and losing income and all of those things are risks as well. They're risks to health, they're risks to well-being on multiple dimensions. So it's not just coronavirus versus everything else, it's, it's a broad mix of all of these different risks and figuring out how to manage those as a society, as an individuals is, is really complex. And I guess, you know, to follow up on Bryce's question further and it, and Bryce, I'm not trying to punt that, that, that I don't think we need to assess our landing point for risk versus uncertainty. Um, what I am finding right now is that it's very interesting to observe that we definitely have a wide breadth of risk tolerance in our community. And I think that's what we're seeing as an mm-hmm. expression of this sort of fracturing of our unity. Um, my hope is we'll come to a place where 
our policymakers and elected officials who I do think there is an onus on them to eventually be able to articulate for us what we are striving for. Um, at some point, we do have to start talking about what level of global risk we're trying to solve for. And it's clear right now there is a constituency, I think small but vocal in our community, who want zero risk of infection or disease spread and people who want zero risk of economic collapse or restraint of activities. And there's a big group of us in the middle who appreciate that we are we are walking a knife edge right now, a knife edge ridge. And on one side is exposure to the virus that leads to physical harm. And on the other is a complete lack of activity that leads to economic and I think mental health harms. And you, we have to navigate that knife edge ridge really carefully. But I think we do need to understand what level of risk we're trying to balance for so that we I think that's the place where we can start to give people greater confidence about what the right triggers are for going to phase two or the right triggers are for going back to phase one. I'm not seeing a place where those conversations are being had to define that level of risk yet, but I, I hope we can get there soon. That seems reasonable. Uh, you know, and ultimately we're not going to particularly all isolated at home. It's going to be very difficult to reach some sort of, widespread consensus but uh the first step as you pointed out is just make sure people are as informed as possible so that we can all start making our own choices and have at least a discussion about what risk we're actually taking as opposed to the risk that we're imagining we're taking which is i think what a lot of us are because we just don't know enough right we're learning a lot more um you know like this appears to be largely indoor transmission where you're exposed to the same person for a prolonged period of time. Um, well, that's great. That, that tells me that there's certain activities that I'm likely to be, then I'm going to say there's no risk, but there's much less risk from hiking on trails or being in the park or whatever it might be. And, you know, so, I mean, I think that obviously the information stage is the first and most important stage, but um, in terms of, policy in terms of guiding a business in terms of you should set yourself up to look like this um and it's important to have some sense of understanding of okay we said that this was quote safe because we thought that we've driven it to zero risk but we've driven it to this level of risk so that people can decide for themselves if they want to go into that business or not yeah there's there's I mean, as I said before, there's there's baseline risk with everything, and it's sort of been this thing operating in the background in general with all of our implicit calculus just throughout life. It's the way you go through life. Like, do you cross that street? Do you do you do this? Do you do that? And and now it's you know there's there's another variable in there. It's a significant variable, and we're sort of trying to figure it out as we learn more and more. And then within that, yeah, like how do you how do you create policy and then grant you're kind of at that interface between like you know you don't you don't necessarily make policy but you can influence it yet you also have to sort of communicate policy to your constituents um you you got to sit at a pretty interesting and then somewhat precarious seat right now um as you mentioned before there's some discomfort with trying to you know maybe push people in certain directions um how do you manage that polarity that you described earlier between people that, 
you know, want zero transmission risk to people that want zero economic disruption? How do those conversations take place? I think, um, I think here is where I draw on a body of experience of running for elected office for nine months. Exactly. And, um, and really what I have come to believe is that, um, there are these in every issue, no matter what it is, no matter where you go, there are groups of people who have pretty disparate and extreme views. I don't think that they represent the majority of the people in our community who are looking for a very well-reasoned science-based approach that balances the risks that we have around our public health, physical health crisis, and our economic and mental health crises, and the short-term acute impacts and the long-term challenges. And I guess the the exciting part is being at that cruxy nexus between policy decisions and policy implementation. Um, the What has allowed me to do this with some degree of confidence is that, and I think this is the thing that I come back to over and over again and why I say everywhere I go, I'd never want to do this anywhere else. I think that we are incredibly fortunate to have business leaders, elected leaders, health department leaders who I did not know at all before this started, who respect each other, communicate with each other, and try really hard to find pragmatic ways to move quickly in unison going forward. And um, and there's really not a lot of, um, at the conversations where we're trying to find those steps forward one by one, there's not a lot of fighting over extreme positions. There's really a, a measured approach to bringing the best information to the table and trying to make the most informed decisions we can and implement them as quickly as we can with as many people behind them as possible. And I think, I don't think you could do better in a democracy and in a capitalist society. I agree. I, I think that um, I, I'm at a lot of the same tables that Grant sits at and the collaboration, the mutual respect. Uh, you probably noticed it yesterday too, Grant, in the reopening Missoula working group that people were just killing each other with kindness. Like if somebody mm-hmm. said, uh, you know, I pick, just picked up a paperclip, somebody else would have said, great job, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> it, was, it was really uh, an island of civility in a, in a kind of scary time. And I also think that I agree with you that uh, we have extremists that on both sides that in a time of um, such uncertainty that their views are, are just, they're exacerbating their own views, I guess, is how I would put it. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. This is John Twiggs with Montana PBS, and you're listening to A New Angle. Indeed. You know, in this conversation about risk, Susan, a lot of the organizations you work with, particularly, you know, in the nonprofit space, risk kind of takes some different forms, whether you're providing services um, to, to, you know, to folks facing food insecurity, housing insecurity, whatever. It's a different type of interaction rather than, you know, a, a transaction where a customer comes into this, a store or something like that. It's a different type of transaction with different types of things at stake. How are you and your, and you and your colleagues in the nonprofit space thinking about those risks? 
Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if there's a one size fits all approach. Obviously the, this pandemic has brought a couple of things into sharp relief. One is that we are a very important sector. We're not just, you know, charity. That's a nice thing to do that may be disposable. We are critical to the health of our economy in Missoula and Montana and around the country. And we are critical literally to the health and survival of, of thousands of people in Missoula County. And the other thing is we are incredibly fragile and uh, ill-equipped to handle crises for an extended period of time. Uh, I think many people have applied successfully for assistance during this time and are stepping up their fundraising efforts. But the, the risk that they're facing is literally in many cases, like, like our small businesses, is whether or not they will survive and how to continue providing those one-on-one -on -one services that so many provide in this new abnormal. Um, and I, I don't think that anybody has it totally figured out. I could, Justin, I would like to add something that I think has made this a much easier process for me. And I, I am not saying this to um, butter up our co-host here today, but I, I could not have done what I am doing without Bryce Ward's help. Um, he has been so instrumental in providing me with insights of what to expect coming down the pike. Um, I do think that for many people, every day feels like a new challenge and there's a huge amount of uncertainty at what's coming and um, both in terms of what to expect economically and where to focus our attention at MEP and in the community. But I think more importantly, and maybe in the context of what we're talking about right now, he shared a presentation with us a week or two ago that uh, offered a slide about some trends around social behavior and um, social capital in in the lead up and follow of a natural disaster and this sort of projection of this notion of um of the heroic and sort of catalyzing unifying euphoria that we feel when we're going through this process and we come together and we feel good about what we're doing and we all are in it together and this peak that we hit when suddenly we start to see some disillusionment and and maybe starting to battle over scarce resources and find our place in all of this um, helped me put a lot of what's been happening in the last week into a context that I felt like equipped with the tools to deal with that. And, and I think going back to your original question, part of what I think our responsibility is, is not just policy, but to forecast for people to the greatest extent possible what they can expect coming forward so that not every day feels like a, a new day or a new challenge or a completely big shift in our environment. I agree with the importance of braces, you know, my, my new rabbi's um, prognostications and that slide about the, the heroic phase after something like this and the honeymoon phase. And the, I forget the other phases, but just knowing that, that there's sort of predictable patterns to the way these things go from people who have experienced them was helpful and a little bit light at the end of the tunnel, I think for my sector at least. Indeed. And we'll make that, um, that slide available on our show notes. Uh, Grant, I know you got to peel off to get to a, a press conference, but this seems like a useful time to pivot to Bryce to kind of, you know, what I'm interested um, to hear your commentary on Bryce is what, you know, what have you learned or what's emerging um, either 
things we're learning or things we're learning we don't know, you know, about the economics of a crisis like this, you know, and how to craft policy or you know, I don't even know if policy is the right word, how to deploy interventions um, as this crisis is moving. What is the field of economics learning or what are the key debates that are emerging right now? Um, well, I, the main thing we're learning right now is just how bad it is. Yeah. Um, you know, so in terms uh, of just quantifying the damage at this point, literally quantifying the damage, uh, you know, particularly at the individual level, you know, so in Montana, based on two separate surveys that were conducted a week or so ago, they came up with slightly different numbers. They asked slightly different questions and they were slightly different samples, but essentially you should think that basically 50% of Montana workers have either lost their job or seen their hours and pay cut. 50%. Wow. Um, and that's obviously very large. Um, and so we're bracing for big impacts from that type of a shock uh, the good news is that we do have enhanced unemployment insurance and we have PPP and we have a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, the, you know, the 1.25 billion that the state of Montana gets to play around with. Um, and all of that's designed to kind of help fill the hole. Um, but it, mostly, most of what we're learning right now is we're just, we, we know that the shock happened, but we, it takes time to get the information to understand uh, the consequences of that shock. And um, this Friday, we get the official April employment numbers from yeah. the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So we'll get the official data, but we've gotten a bunch of survey data early, um, including Montana-specific data, that have given us some sense of this is what we're going to see. You know, 20-plus million people have lost their job. Uh, basically, an almost equivalent number have seen hours and pay cut. Uh and so the question then is, well, what does this mean for us going forward? And that's where we we quickly run aground because nobody knows. And, you know, there's lots of forecasts out there of people trying to predict what's going to happen. Um, the problem is, is that we don't even know what's going to happen with the virus. So I can't tell you what happens with the economy until I knows what's, know what's going to happen with the virus. Right. And, uh, you know... And that's so it's it's highly uncertain, right? And so, you know, the thing that I do in these presentations, which Grant and Susan have been very generously uh, commending me for, uh, I that's been my focus. And it kind of comes back to our very first one of these. I said, look, we'll focus on capacity. That's what we can control. Mm -hmm. I can't control demand. That's up to other people, but I can control capacity. And, um, you know, this discussion of social capital, you know, our our willingness to be in this together and uh, you know, uh, trust each other and uh, extend grace to each other and all of that kind of stuff is, it's actually my biggest concern, right? The physical buildings that are sitting downtown Missoula, I don't expect them to fall down. I don't expect the roads to suddenly break apart. Um, you know, there's definitely going to be some human capital loss, but, you know, we can relearn skills and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the thing that's really hard, the the part of, you know, um, I don't think I've done this in any of the presentations that Grant and Susan have seen, but I, uh, sometimes I call this the Humpty Dumpty recession. 
right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Uh, you know, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And that's basically what's happened to our economy. We're not going to be able to put our economy back together again, no matter how hard we try. But if we can keep more pieces of it together, then that's our goal. And um, if all the king's horses and all the king's men aren't working together, which is what social capital is basically about, um, if we're fighting each other, then uh, our, our prospects for recovery get much, much dimmer. And that's why it is important to go back to this concept of grace. And, you know, and the problem that we have is that there are bad actors, right? Mm-hmm. There are people that are uh, one extreme basically saying they don't care about the effect of their actions on others. Um, and there's another extreme which basically says, uh, I care only about your action, the impact of the potential impacts or the my my fears about the impact of your actions on others and so they want to control everything and you know to the extent that those voices are loud and they are magnified in the media environment um and in a political environment it gets really hard to kind of keep you know that what grant and susan are describing of everybody at these meetings that are trying to make big important decisions being very generous and kind and graceful um that's what we need to have happen uh it becomes much much harder uh when we start basically saying i don't care about you uh and a lot of our discourse not just now and this is you know the problem that i think you and i have talked about for years uh our discourse for many years has been, you're my enemy. Right. And if you're my enemy, it's, uh, why should I suffer for you? Yeah. We sort of descend into these tribes and then we insulate ourselves in bubbles associated with those tribes and information bubbles associated with those tribes. That's the danger. feels like that's the kind of explicit danger at the national level. There's no obvious reason why, your position on, you know, the, the how the dimmer switches turn should be a partisan issue, but it, it kind of quickly becomes one. You know, there's no reason why the efficacy of hydrochloroquine or whatever, however you pronounce it, is a partisan issue, but it kind of becomes one. And you know, to hear from particularly Susan and Grant, who sit in these meetings, that that sort of um, dissension has not yet emerged, at least it's not the dominant uh, framework that's existing, is, is really heartening. Uh, Susan, does that echo your experience? I mean, I feel like we're we're still in the coming together phase dominantly, although there are d- descending voices that right. people are generally coming together still. I, I would agree. And, you know, it's never worked to circle the wagons and fire inward. And I, I feel like there, we have avoided some of the pitfalls, um, including on the governor's task force, when at one point it seemed like nonprofits and small businesses were competing mm-hmm. instead of all being in it together. And I think we successfully avoided that. Um, nobody, you know, nobody wanted everything in their own hands and was were they folks were willing to share. Um, yeah. And Susan, can I press on that a little bit? Like, uh, you know, sure. I don't necessarily, those meetings are sacred and I'm not asking you to divulge content specifically, but, you know, describe some of those hard conversations and, and, and how the group 
moved through them to get to a, a better place? Like how, how was positive sum achieved? Well, I think the leadership of Larry Simpkins and uh, Adam Schaefer from the governor's office staffing the committee. And uh, I really have to give kudos to the governor's staff for um, they just must have been working 24 seven on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a real commitment to civility, mutual respect. Uh, and uh, we, we did disagree <laughs> um, at, at some points. I'm laughing at, at, at a couple of exchanges, but uh, in the end, everybody was more focused on getting to yes and willing to give up a piece of the pie to get a better pie for everybody. And that characterized the, the tenure, uh, the tenor rather of every, uh, every discussion or email that I was part of where people were able to advocate strongly and educate others. People were open to learning about sectors that they didn't know much about. Uh, In the nonprofit sector discussions, for example, there was uh, at the beginning a a focus on essential safety net services. And then we started thinking about organizations that are going to be affected that aren't safety net services, you know, the arts community, the entertainment Mm -hmm. community, for example, and uh, made sure to, to build in some generous support opportunities for those sectors. And I think the same is going on locally with uh, the efforts that that I'm a part of. And it's the only way to move forward because we uh, just are not going to survive if we cannibalize each other and are pitted against each other. Yeah, that speaks to the the importance of social capital. And Bryce, I know you've mentioned it. I want to draw this out a little bit more explicitly. You and your wife, Maggie, teach a class in our Masters of Public Administration on social capital. I've heard you speak uh, in our exchanges about social capital and the importance. Um, thinking about it in terms of you know, whether it's, whether it's an individual just happening to be listening, a student, a small business owner, you know, social capital is super important right now, yet in this era, in this time of social distancing uh, or physical distancing, I should, I should say, how would you advise people to, to develop those skills, the, those muscles as you frame them? So um, just a very crude sense of what is social capital, right? So social capital is essentially, if you think about some economists, everything kind of comes back to scarcity for me. So I will put it in a very economic framework, although you don't have to. How do I solve problems of scarcity? Well, there's, I can turn to the market and I can take out my wallet and I can buy the thing that I need, right? That's one way of trying to solve a problem of scarcity. Um, If I'm so inclined, I can resort to violence and I can just take what I need. Um, but if I don't have money and I don't want to resort to violence, well, how do I get what I need to solve whatever problem that I have um, when I, you know, because having more resources is usually a, a means to, to solve a problem. And if I have a social network where those resources might be available to me, well, then that's my social capital, right? If I have the, if, if those resources exist in my network and I have some ability to access them, that's my individual social capital. But then we also have groups, you know, firm and family and community social capital. But basically, to the extent that we're going to try and solve problems, um, you know, using each other as opposed to just pure market transactions or literally just taking what we want from others, um, you're in the realm of social capital. 
And obviously having social capital is about having people that you know, being willing not just to have people that you know that may have resources that you want, but also being willing to ask for it. And then also because how do you get people to give you stuff is you give them stuff. Um, That's oversimplified, but that's, you know, Mm -hmm. and so how do you build social capital when you can't go out and meet new people? Uh, That's hard. And that's one of the things that I'm concerned about with our social capital going forward is we may have many months in which a lot of serendipitous interaction of me meeting you or you meeting somebody else who's going to be an important resource for you to rely on uh, isn't happening. Um, And while we have data, people are talking more to their friends and family now than they were prior to COVID. Um, and my own personal experience bears that out, right? I've got every other week Zoom calls with all sorts of different groups of friends. Um, and, you know, I, these are people that I literally was not talking to basically at all sure. for decades. <laughs> um, you know, it was like text messages here and there. And now we all get on a single call and we talk for two hours. Um, uh, so, you know, that's great. So, the, you know, to the extent that I'm deepening relationships that had maybe depreciated some, this is good. But in terms of, you know, forming those new connections or building your social skills, it's tough. It's a tough time. You know, and it, it's one of the things that I worry about with my kids right now mm-hmm. is I, yeah, I can teach a math. Like I can give up, you know, a couple hours of my day and I can substitute for classroom instruction in how to do equivalent fractions and how to do two-digit addition and all sorts of things. Um, but a lot of social skills is what we send our kids to school to learn. Right. And uh, that's been taken away in a lot of sense, in a lot of ways, right? You know, there's, we're starting to get to the point where, yes, you can go play with the neighbors as long as you're outside, but, um, you know, basically they're just playing with the same two people all the time. Uh, Although I will not, say, not to interrupt necessarily, but the, the repetitive play with the same people does sort of build some social muscle in that you can't, you can't it you, it, conflict will emerge and you have to work through it or else you're going to have no friends. No, no. And, you know, and it's kind of one of the, one of, you know, it, maybe I'll, 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 I was going to save this for the, you know, what am I stoked about, but I'll, I'll use it now. Yeah, we're getting um, there. So bring it. I've really enjoyed the fact that as the weather's gotten nice, um, my kids have really reverted to something that looks a lot more like my childhood. Mm. Uh, There's just a lot more roaming around the neighborhood, going further afield than they've ever gone. And the parents basically all being like, and, you know, I mean, part of this is probably because everybody is home, right? You know, there is somebody watching them. Uh, But, you know, they're roaming further. They're, they are actually fighting more, which I guess isn't (laughs) great. Um, but you know, literally like, you know, not just fights among siblings, but like cross kid fights, um, which, you know, yeah, it is, it's an opportunity to learn, um, you know, a lot more of the kinds of, you know, a lot of the games that you used to play as a child are reemerging in ways that I have not seen in years, you know, building forts and, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, well, there's a literal water fight in my uh, backyard yeah, <laughs> with water balloons and all sorts of stuff. And of course, 
And this is what I'm finding very interesting is it's gotten very gendered very fast. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Uh, you know, all of our all of our attempts to kind of, you know, tamp down on gendered stuff or whatever it is. But as we've reverted to uh, something more Lord of the Flies-ish, you know, I'm definitely seeing the boys are over there. Doesn't matter their ages. The girls are over here. Doesn't matter their ages. And they're kind of doing different things. And then they get in fights with each other. Um it's, but it's been interesting to watch uh, and something which I do spend some time trying to say, well, how do we keep at least some of this uh, when hopefully we go back to something that looked more like it was before? Yeah. I mean, there's a great purity to a lot of that. Um, and this isn't a, a big piece of, I mean, you're involved deeply in an institution that cultivates social capital at a community level, and that's City Club Missoula. Uh, this airs. This episode will air the same date of of the the May event, which features Josh Slotnick, John Engen, and Seth Bodnar, three of the most prominent leaders in our community. As you approach that event, Susan, I mean, maybe speak to the importance of that event in terms of building social capital in the community. But but sure, what are you looking for from those three leaders as well? Like, what what are you hoping to to hear? What do you expect of them? I think. Uh they will reinforce a lot of the things that we've talked about in Mm -hmm. this podcast, which is the importance of deep collaboration, social capital. You know, I think they all had strong relationships in the good times. And that means that uh, they're more resilient as leaders and helping our community be more resilient in the bad times. Again, I, I am on these, a few statewide efforts and nobody is approaching this pandemic the way that Missoula is approached it, and we are the envy of many other counties mm. in, in our state. Um, and I think what I feel is so important about City Club at this effort or at this time is that we have to maintain these community connections. We have to stay civically engaged. Uh, and reminder, everybody fill out your census forms. Um, That's right. And we, we cannot let the lack of in-person, the the physical distancing, make us distant from our democracy and distant from our society. And as challenging as it's going to be to do a city club via Zoom, there's a certain amount of equity that I like because now you just need an internet connection and you don't need to pay and go to a hotel and eat a meal. And um, I think that that could mark the beginning of a new approach on behalf of City Club. I'm really going out on a limb here because I'm president of the board, but I haven't discussed any of this with the board. Executive but, leadership, Susan. This is this is your time. <laughs> right. Easier to ask. We're we just talking about collaboration. And- <laughs> Easier to ask forgiveness than permission. Um, but it does. It it it's something that I think we have talked about as a board, like how do we make sure that we hear from more diverse voices and this will be a beginning. Well, I look forward to sort of seeing how that unfolds and, you know, that particular event and beyond. I think it's, yeah, I think it's such an important piece of the fabric of this community. Um, Yeah. Let's try to land the ship. Bryce, uh, maybe you have a second thing you're stoked about. I mean, kids playing in the street and, and maybe even approaching stickball. Um, is something good? Anything else? We haven't got to stickball. We've gotten to kickball. Kickball. Uh, but the actual stickball, no. Yesterday. Uh, That's they, really taking they, it back, stickball. 
yesterday they literally created crafts and set out a they they had a little craft store that they were selling to the other kids nice uh you know i mean it's been like you know when there's many hours to fill because uh as i'm sure you know school doesn't take all that long i found Uh, out that that's a thing it does not take that long which is actually i mean uh, to be fair to the school district uh, if you go to the guidelines on homeschooling and how much time you're supposed to spend right. at homeschool and actual schooling it apparently isn't very much it's very different so a lot well, of your day at school, to, it speaks to a lot of that socialization stuff that that right. happens at school and it's not a happening as prominently right now yeah you know and recess and lunch and pee and music and all the other stuff that um it's you know i guess they still get videos on some of those things sure. but it's it's not the same as hey go to pe for 45 minutes or whatever it is and we're gonna play capture the flag or whatever it is um but yeah um no that was kind of what i had saved up uh i love that the economist kids are um opening a store <laughs> exactly well Trust me, I, I had to w- w- withhold the urge to discuss about cost of time and materials uh, when they were pricing. Uh, although I, I almost went there at the dinner table who was like, well, we were charging 25 cents for everything. And I was like, okay. Uh, That's a teachable moment. That's hard to resist. Right, exactly. What, what's, uh, what, why 25 cents? Uh, <laughs> other than that's just a unit of a quarter that you know that like, you know. Exactly. Uh, but uh, I didn't go there i just was like hey you know great job (laughs) fair enough susan what are you uh what are you excited about this week uh well i'm reflecting back on missoula gives on april 30th and may 1st where almost 3400 donors raised seven hundred and eighty six thousand dollars for 138 nonprofits. just an amazing i mean more than double I think double their goal or almost double their goal and uh, just an amazing show of support for our community. And uh, I completed a jigsaw puzzle all by myself. So I'm very proud of myself for that. (laughs) It's the little things. Yeah. Yeah. Nice job. How many pieces in the puzzle? Uh, Only 500 because that's uh, what my coffee table will hold. But still, when you have cats, two cats that are jumping up and quote unquote helping, um, and plus working long days. It was, it was, it was quite a feat. I'll be updating my resume. Indeed. Yeah. That should be what you lead off with at, at cocktail parties. If cocktail <laughs> parties ever happen. Yeah, exactly. Again. Thanks. Yeah. Have I told you about my jigsaw puzzle? Exactly. <laughs> it's the little things. Uh, what am I thankful for or stoked about? I gotta say, um, you know, as, as an aging kind of, uh, washed up, never was as an athlete, I kind of am thankful to be healthy right now and feeling relatively good. I'm not feeling fit, but I'm feeling like I can get out and do the things I want to do without pain. And that's, um, I'm just super thankful for that because when I get uh, pain in my activities, I get pretty darn cranky. And a way I sort of deal with stress, um, and this is not necessarily a recommendation and it's dysfunctional in many ways, but I like to impose a little self-suffering, hard runs, hard bike rides, intervals, stuff like that. And uh, it's nice to be able to do that with the sort of uh, discomfort that, uh, that I enjoy having, not the discomfort that, uh, that um, I get bummed about. Um, so yeah, you're did scaring a, me. <laughs> did a set, well, I did a set of intervals this morning for the first time in a while and just felt like 
wow, I don't feel fast. I feel out of shape, but it kind of feels good to feel that rather than pain in my knee or my back or whatever. So anyway, thankful for some uh, biomechanical well-being at the moment. So um, anyway, such fun to reconnect with all of you on this weekly basis. I look forward to our next conversation. We're going to have to sort of figure out a data-driven uh, decision framework for when it makes sense to stop doing these things. But in the meantime, I look forward to the next one and thank you both for your contributions. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Our awesome interns, Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Jeff Amet, John Wicks, and VTO for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.